This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I just want to reiterate, I'm serious. If you'd like to email me, I've gotten a few emails. Most of them are prefaced with this kind of language. I know you get a lot of these, blah, blah, but you know what? I really don't get a lot of emails, so don't be shy. If you have any questions or comments, please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you, and I'll email you back. Now that that's out of the way, let's get to this week's podcast. In my ward, I teach Sunday school to the 12 and 13-year-olds, and I've been doing this for some time, five, six years. In the past few years, at the beginning of the school year, I tell this story. It's a story that happened on my mission. One afternoon, after a long day of tracting in the sun, my companion and I went home, and the two elders that we shared the missionary apartment with were there. It was their turn to make dinner, so they were making dinner. Dinner was ready, and we all sat down to eat. And we started sharing stories about the day. And one of the other elders told the most amazing story. He said, well, they were out working that afternoon. They knocked on the door of this apartment. And a young man of maybe 19, 20 years old answered the door. And he was very friendly. He introduced himself, said his name was Jim. And the missionaries, you know, proceeded with their standard spiel. Hey, we got a message about Jesus. Can you know? And Jim was interested. But he said he had something to do. He needed a couple hours. Could they come back in a couple hours? So like good missionaries, they pulled out their Franklin planners. This was in the day of the Franklin planners. And they wrote down in their planners, go back and see Jim two o'clock. And they nodded at Jim and then they left. Well, a couple hours passed and two o'clock came. So they went back to the apartment to see Jim again. And they knocked on the door and the kid answers the door again, just like last time, except this time it's as if he had never seen them before. And they say, hey, we're, we're here, we're, we're here ready for our meeting, you know, to chat about our message. But this kid just looked befuddled, and he wasn't particularly friendly either, like the first time they had met. So they ask him, you know, don't you remember meeting us a couple hours ago right here on the step? You said you had an appointment and to... To come back, well, here we are. And the kid just said, I, I've never seen you guys before in my life. I've been gone all day. I just got back five minutes ago. Now, anyone who's been on a mission knows that this kind of stuff happens all the time. You meet somebody, you have a decent conversation, you make an appointment, and then you go back and they play dumb, or they don't show up. They've had second thoughts, their parents intervene, whatever it is, you know, things fall apart quickly. And sometimes it gets on your nerves as a missionary, it starts to bug you. Well, one of these guys thought Jim was playing some games, you know, playing dumb. So he pulls the Franklin planner out. You don't embarrass this kid. You know, we're not dummies, Jim. You can't play the old, you know, rope-a-dope, fake-me-out game. So he opens up the Franklin planner and says, look, I wrote your name right here. You saw me write it down. Go back to see Jim, 2 o'clock, okay? If you're not interested, just, just say so. Well, at this point, the kid's face goes totally white, way beyond embarrassment. And the missionaries sensed it, too. They sensed this was more than just the runaround. And they got still for a second. And they said, look, it's, it's fine if you're not interested. And they took a softer tone. 
you know, maybe they were a little embarrassed themselves that they had not been more charitable. I mean, it's just a kid after all. So at this point, they're almost apologetic. They're like, look, we're, we're sorry to hassle you. We'll, we'll be on our way. No big deal, you know. But then the kid looks up and he said, no, 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 you don't understand. Jim is the name of my twin brother, but he passed away six months ago. Well, when we heard this, we were totally floored. The tingles just raced up our spines and the hairs on our arms were standing straight up. The deceased twin intervening from the other side of the veil so that the missionaries wouldn't pass by the apartment of his twin who was still living in this room. Whoa. And I was slack-jawed and I said, holy cow, you've got to be kidding me. And the elder who was telling the story looked up and just nodded really angelically. And he said, yeah, I am kidding you. You're like, what? He said, yeah, I'm kidding you. That never happened. Nothing happened today. It was a boring day. And now it was my turn to be confused. I was, I was like, what? And then I realized the guy had made the story up and he was just messing with us. And then my companion figured it out and he's ticked. You know, he, he's mad at him. Called him a name or something. You know, that's not cool. What do you, you know, it wasn't, I mean, it was in retrospect, it's kind of funny, but you know, it wasn't cool at the time. You know, we're missionaries. We're slogging along. We're trying to have some success. We're trying to, you know, find meaning and inspiration. And, and this housemate of ours provides this story that of this incredible kind of experience that we're all craving. This amazing spiritual experience that seems to, you know, make all of our labors worthwhile. And then he just pulls the rug out from underneath us. So that's not cool. That makes us mad. You know, on one level, it's almost cruel, right? It's like offering the man dying of thirst a tall, cool glass of water with ice in it. And then right before he grasps it, turning it upside down and dumping it out. These are the kind of scenes you'd see in an Adam Sandler movie. You know, the, the victim being bullied by the local tough guy who's so sadistic. Of course, on one level, it's sort of our own fault, isn't it? I mean, we're craving something so badly that we're susceptible to manipulation. Our own desires render us vulnerable to this sort of stuff. You know, the bully with the tall glass of water with ice in it, he's going to get no satisfaction from some guy who's just finished drinking a gallon of Gatorade. That guy's thirst has been slaked, and so he doesn't care when the tall glass of water gets turned upside down. He's not disturbed by that act. But for the dying man, thirsting, I mean, his his cravings and his desires are so strong that when the bully turns the glass up, oh, it's painful indeed. You know, so if we had just baptized 35 people in the previous month, we may not have been so susceptible to being manipulated by this, you know, story this guy was telling about the dead twin arranging the missionary appointment for his still living brother. So in that sense, we were easy prey. You know, so desires and passions are interesting things, aren't they? Attachments are interesting And they affect how we feel and how we see the world, how we react, not just to stories or glasses of water, but to all the things that we're experiencing in life. 
And often in life, we will reject things or ignore things or not notice things that are truly supernatural, truly miraculous, truly serendipitous, whatever word you want to use, because we're overwhelmed by the desires, the attachments, the conditionings that appear to be informing us about what we really want in life. As I think back to my mission, for example, there were so many miracles that I appreciate now, many years after the fact, that I just didn't appreciate at the time because I was too myopic, too overwhelmed with my own short-term desires, immature passions, uninformed attachments. When I came home from my mission, I found a photograph of my own father at age 19 in Hong Kong, the city where I had served my mission. When he was done with his freshman year of college, he hitchhiked across the country, got a job on a steamer, sailed to Hong Kong, and then while in Hong Kong on leave, had a photograph taken of himself in a rickshaw in Hong Kong at age 19, 32 years before I had gone to Hong Kong on my mission. I didn't even know of this until after I got home from my mission. I did know that my own brother had also served in Hong Kong just a couple of years before I had. So three members of my family had been in Hong Kong at age 19. All three of us had had formative experiences during the twilight of our youth, the beginning of our adult years in this exotic city. And over the years, that gave us all a lot to talk about. It kind of bound us together in a way. Well, I wasn't thinking of those sort of miracles when I was a missionary in Hong Kong. Or better yet, I didn't recognize those kind of miracles. But that was quite miraculous indeed, that our lives would be interwoven in such a way over time and space. You know, my father, when he was 19, he was not a member of the church even. He was a little disillusioned with life, a little dissatisfied. He was having his Jack Kerouac moment, hitchhiked across the country. You know, as a rebellious, angst-filled, angry young man. It all sounds quite romantic in hindsight, actually. You know, but this odyssey he's going on when he's a kid ends up taking him to the same city where two of his sons will serve missions far in the future at the same age. I mean, we talked earlier about tingles up the spine and hair standing up. I mean, this... When I think about this, boy, I really get the tingles up the spine and the hairs on my arm really stand up. Of course, when I was in the field, an actual missionary, I didn't appreciate any of this. Now, part of it was just life. I mean, you don't appreciate everything that happens to you as it happens. That's life. Still, I was obsessed with the white book, which for any of you who have served missions knows is the rule book that you're given in the MTC, or at least it was when I was a missionary. The rules of the little white book. I was obsessed with going out and finding converts. And everything that I experienced was judged through that lens. It was either a means to that end or it was not a means to that end. And if it was not a means, it was discarded, miraculous or not. No one had taught me and I had not figured out on my own that there were tons of miracles and a massive amount of synchronicity and serendipity sent from beyond that had little or nothing to do with proving the church was true and getting converts. Maybe that's why parables 
like Jack and the Beanstalk or movies like Pleasantville resonate with us. They both tell the story of things that are unappreciated, unnoticed, yet are still miraculous or splendid. And why are these miraculous and splendid things initially unnoticed or unappreciated? Well, it's because because the point of view of the person experiencing it or possessing it is so limited. We remember Jack, right? He got these beans, traded the family cow for them because he was told they were magical beans. They were special beans. They're going to bring about miracles in his life. He, he goes home to tell his mother this, and she wants to kill him. How stupid is he? Well, he throws him outside, and this massive stalk grows, and we know the rest of the story. The stalk leads to this incredible place with a goose and golden eggs and all sorts of wild experiences. In the movie Pleasantville, Toby Maguire and Reese Witherspoon are living in a world that's entirely black and white. And they don't notice all the colors of the rainbow until they have an awakening experience. Something that teaches them to stop thinking the way they've been taught and start thinking the way they are. Well, that sounds kind of Eastern and kind of weird. Particularly if you're a young Mormon boy on a mission with a limited set of desires, an uninformed set of expectations, a world that's been circumscribed. It's really easy to start viewing all the world, all of life's experiences through a black and white lens. It's easy to leave the house and see a massive beanstalk leading up to heaven and say to yourself, boy, am I a moron. I sure wish I still had that cow because, man, I could really use a glass of milk right now. It's particularly easy to do this when our attachments are too strong or maybe our understandings too literal. Now, all this isn't just a problem inside our community, inside the LDS community. This is a problem in all communities. I recently read a book by Peter Enns called The Sin of Certainty. And if you read the preface of this book, I mean, you think the guy is an LDS author talking about how his own faith has become more expansive and mature, how he's dropped a few attachments, become more open-minded, less dogmatic, more living in the moment. Of course, he's not LDS. He's an Old Testament scholar, Protestant. You can find similar experiences recorded by people of all faiths who are having a wide range of spiritual experiences. So this is not a uniquely LDS phenomenon. But I'll tell you what is uniquely LDS. We as a people, as a culture, view all miracles, all spiritual affirmation and guidance as leading us towards one conclusion, and that's the church is true. Everything is conflated with the ultimate conclusion that the church is true. But I'm here to say that regardless of your position on that statement, if that's the lens you're viewing everything you experience in life, you're missing out on a massive amount of life. You're not noticing miracles and miracles. You're missing out on a massive amount of communication from beyond. I don't care what your position is regarding the church is true or the church is not true. But if you're looking at life through that lens only, you're missing out. And people who think the church isn't true are also missing out if they're looking at life solely through that lens, if they're conflating everything with that question. 
So my own mind, it's not just people who are obsessed with the church being true, and it's not just people who are so angry and trying to prove the church isn't true. It's the obsession with the question to begin with. It's that attachment that forms the lens or the perspective, however you want to call it, that, believe it or not, will limit your experience, which is what we do inside the church. Not always, but often. People get up, they tell incredibly miraculous stories or incredibly spiritual encounters or tell stories of love or compassion. And the ultimate conclusion is, therefore, I know that, you know, so-and-so is a prophet and the church is true. And I'm just here to say, sometimes miracles just are what they are. Or sometimes they're to be understood 30 years in the future. Or sometimes they're meant so that you and your father and your brother can have something to talk about over time. Or sometimes God just wants you to start noticing the color and the splendor in life. And these things sometimes have nothing to do with what's going on at General Conference or Palmyra or the Book of Mormon. And that's okay. Now, it's hard to take this position because it's so easily taken out of context, twisted around, used to prove that either you're a heretic or used to justify destructive, atrocious behavior like spending time at the strip club or the casino or drinking. You know, I I like to talk about things that way, but I think you know what I mean. You know, it's hard to talk about things this way because it does introduce an element of risk, of danger, The same way using gasoline or a rifle or driving an automobile is something with a certain amount of inherent risk. Speaking of cars, I had a horrible, terrifying experience just last week. I was driving down the highway at high speeds with my children, one of my child's friends in the car. I was missing the exit. It was coming up quick on the right. I wasn't in the right-hand lane. I was in the center lane, and I thought, oh, I'm going to make it, and I swerved over, and I didn't notice this car right behind me. I almost hit it. We were going 70 miles an hour. I've been having nightmares about what could have happened all this past week. I mean, if I had hit the car behind me going 70 miles an hour with the speed at which I lurched from the center lane towards the exit, think of the damage I could have caused. I could have hit the embankment. I mean, it just it terrifies me. So even something as simple as driving a car carries a certain amount of risk. You know, and expanding the lens or switching out the lens, if you will, by which you view the world to one that's a little more wide angle where there's some risk inherent in that, too, isn't there? But it makes no sense to hold on to self-imposed limitations, self-imposed restrictions, because you're afraid of what you don't know, of what might be there, what might be at the top of the beanstalk. Again, I want to be clear, I'm not endorsing the libertine lifestyles, you know, a la the Anabaptists in the Munster Rebellion, where they just, you know, threw off the shackles of sexual decency and began practicing all sorts of, you know, free love. The nuns were sleeping with the Protestant ministers. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about rationales that people use to just justify terrible, bad behavior that's self-destructive. I'm talking about being able to see the miracles that come through daily life. Noticing the splendor and the color and the love, the serendipity, the answers to prayers that come in all sorts of forms that we miss often because we're obsessed with sorting things 
as means or not means to any particular limited ends that we might have. Because I believe if you want to know God, it helps when you can start seeing what God's giving you. Rather than sorting all the blessings of life as helpful means or unhelpful means to some particular end that you have. Based on some sort of attachment or desire that you know, may, may or may not make any sense at all. When you start doing that, you can start experiencing life, I think, more like Ruth did. You remember Ruth from the Old Testament? Ruth was not an Israelite. She was not part of the tribe. Her husband died. Her brother-in-law died. And she stuck with her mother-in-law, Naomi, alone. And the mother-in-law, to her credit, Naomi, she says, Look, Ruth, you don't have to stay with me. Go home to your people. She was from Moab. Not Moab, Utah, but... Moab, a region adjacent to Israel. So Naomi says, go home, go you know, be with your people. And Ruth says, you know what? I'm not leaving you here alone. I'm going to stay. Let's, let's stick together. Well, from Naomi's perspective, that's probably a miracle. A woman in her elderly years, alone, defenseless, and this young, strong daughter-in-law of hers decides to stay with her, defies custom. That would have mandated that she return to her own people in Moab. She stays instead with Naomi. And they travel together to Bethlehem. You remember Bethlehem, right? That's kind of an important city. Hugely symbolic. The city of David, the place where Christ was born. This is, of course, centuries before Christ. Still, they travel to Bethlehem. And there they meet Boaz, who's a relative of some sort to Naomi. And Boaz allows Ruth and Naomi to go out into the fields after they've picked it clean of all the corn and glean whatever's left over. Now, it doesn't really say in the text what Ruth and Naomi think of this opportunity to glean the fields of Boaz, but they probably thought of it as a great miracle, a blessing. Here's some food left over, left unpicked by the professional pickers, food that grew up out of the ground somehow. Merely because someone planted a seed. Many layers of miracles here, of splendor to be noticed. None of which would have been noticed, by the way, if Ruth and Naomi's attachments were to pride or status. They would have thought, I'm not going into the fields and groveling for food. You know, who knows? We don't know what they really thought. But I'm going to interpret it as if they were very grateful and thought that this was a great blessing and a miracle. And I think that's reasonable to think that. Anyways, the story gets really interesting when Naomi comes up with a scheme. According to Israelite law at the time, there was a relative who was nearer to Naomi than Boaz, therefore nearer to Ruth than Boaz, a closer relation. And this relative was entitled to buy Ruth's dead husband's field. Okay, you got to follow this a little bit. And thereby acquire Ruth as the wife, the new wife. Because apparently women went with the field, with the land in old Israelite times. And again, I don't want to have a big conversation about how equitable or just any of this was. Just trying to understand the details of the story. Anyway, Naomi is worried that Ruth is going to end up with this other guy, this near kindred. So she comes up with a scheme. She tells Ruth to go in at night after Boaz has been drinking. 
and kind of just lay down at his feet. Because apparently everyone knows that after Boaz drinks, he goes into the barn where they keep all the unthreshed corn and he kind of plops down there and sleeps it off. So Boaz has a merry night of eating and drinking and then he goes into the barn, per usual, plops down, and there is Ruth waiting for him. And Boaz is a little startled by this, but he's noticed her from days earlier when she's out gleaning the fields. He knows this damsel, quote unquote, and he's taken a liking to her, so he, you know, he's pleased she's there, presumably. We don't hear any of the other sordid details, but we do know that at this juncture, Boaz makes Ruth a promise. He says, look, if the guy who's a closer relative to you guys than I am wants to buy the field, I guess we're going to have to let him do that. But if he won't do that, I'm going to step up and I'm going to buy the field. This, of course, is the goal, Naomi's goal, in setting this whole thing up. Well, the closer relative passes on the field. Everybody saves face. Boaz steps up, buys the field of Ruth's dead husband, and then he becomes her new husband. So we see in the story of Ruth, a lot of tricky waters are being navigated by Naomi, by Boaz, by Ruth. A lot of miracles, a lot of serendipity, a lot of natural beauty, a lot of natural splendor in the form of plants growing miraculously out of the ground, food being produced from mere seeds. You know, the near relative who didn't buy the field, he sort of stepped aside graciously. Ruth ends up with a new husband. Again, we don't know if she really liked him. We think she did. Let's assume that he that she did, that, you know, they're attracted to each other. I mean, I think that makes the story more meaningful. And things work out in this way that, man, you couldn't even predict it from the beginning when Naomi's two sons die and all she's left with is her daughter-in-law. I think along the way, a lot of attachments, a lot of desires, a lot of pride was pruned away. And this allowed Naomi to see more expansively. It allowed Ruth to see things more expansively. Boaz to see things more expansively. The self-imposed restrictions of pride, of righteousness, of truth, of black and white. All these things were kind of chucked out the window. And it didn't result in Ruth living a libertine lifestyle, a self-destructive lifestyle of sin and indulgence it opened her mind and allowed her to see miracles and experience them and most importantly to receive them in the form of companionship with naomi in the form of food that she picked up off the ground in the form of a new husband who she sort of i don't know how you describe it you know going and laying down at the feet of some prominent guy in the barn while he's sleeping off the, the, you know, the previous night's drink. I don't know what you exactly call that, but I think to do that act, you, you let go of a few attachments. And I don't think Ruth the whole time was obsessing about whether all these miracles led her to the conclusion that the church was true or that she needed to go and find converts. And again, I'm not denigrating that position. I'm just saying Sometimes miracles are way beyond that. And sometimes we miss the constant stream of blessings 
we miss miracles that come in all sorts of shapes and sizes and forms. And we miss out on the splendor of life because we're too attached or we're too limited or we're too focused on something that isn't all that relevant. Then, In the end of the story, Ruth has a son with Boaz. That son's name is Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. Jesse has a son named David. In the same verse of Scripture, they trace Boaz's lineage backwards. Boaz is traced back to Perez. Perez, if you remember, was one of the twins born to Tamar. Both of these twins were the illegitimate children of Judah, the brother of Joseph. And Tamar was the one who played the harlot on the side of the road to lure Judah in. If you trace this same lineage forward, you learn that this is the lineage of Christ. He came through Ruth's line, Boaz's line, Ruth who was not an Israelite. He came through the illegitimate twins of Judah born by Tamar. Judah had a lot of legitimate kids. He had a wife, maybe a couple, but Christ didn't come through that line. So what does that tell us about our attachments, our obsessions with right and wrong, with black and white, with the limiting lenses we put on things? Pretty good symbol there, and it's pretty easy to make the inference that, well, maybe the things that we think are important are maybe not so important. Maybe we can be a little more open-minded. Maybe we can look for the miracles of life the way that God's giving them to us. And in the forms he's giving them to us. Well, I've gone on too long. I hope you've experienced something interesting here. Just in the spirit of full disclosure, the story that I told at the beginning of this episode was actually experienced by my older brother. He was the one living with the impish elder who told that horrible story about the brother. Not me, in case anyone's out fact-checking. Until next time. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Jack Nanique or Mormon Awakenings. Until next time.